Hello and welcome to another episode of Too Much Time on Our Hands, the theatrical cut. I'm Sonia and as always sat opposite me with a face for radio is Terry. Hello Sonia. Hello dear. Um, so this week we're talking about the Hellraiser movies. I'm very excited because they're my favourites. Um, but before we do that we're going to go straight in with our weekly roundup. Shall yeah. I start? Yeah, yeah, why not? Although I think we start with the same film. I'm almost certain we have. So I've had a... A lacklustre week or two weeks of watching, not including the topic. So I have endeavoured to watch all of the Halloween films and obviously the first three Hellraisers, which has left the rest of my activity somewhat limited. And you've been watching those on the bus, haven't you? Yeah. That must be a treat for everyone sat around and behind you. As I mentioned to you in a WhatsApp, watching Hellraiser, you're aware it's kind of gory, kind of sexy... Kind of sexy. <laughs> it's not until you're sat on a bus surrounded by the elderly and the young mm. and someone's literally just had sex and then has their entire skin ripped off them and are then sucked into a giant post that you think, probably not bus appropriate, this. Sexy skinless times. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so the first film I watched, which we, we weren't together, were we? No. Because you went I'm glad off- you noticed that. <laughs> It was just me and Rich from the fan club. So we saw The Hate You Give, which was an unlimited secret screening, mm. which I was highly anticipating it might be Bohemian Rhapsody or the Halloween film. Yeah, I was beside her. I went to see it with my mum. And, um, and I did say to her, I said, like, now prepare yourself that it might be Halloween. Um, but also it might be Bohemian Rhapsody. And we were getting very excited about Bohemian Rhapsody. And um, it came up as The Hate You Give, um, which Did you know fine. what it was? When it came up, I'd seen a tra- I'd seen a couple of trailers for it. Yeah. I'd seen a trailer, but I couldn't picture it. Mm. I recognised the name, but just couldn't put like anything to it. it once it started, I realised what it yeah. was. Did you have walkouts? We had a lot of walkouts, yeah. Which I really, really don't understand with um, like the secret screenings. It's like these people have made the effort to go to the cinema at that time. They won't have seen the film. No, like. Why not just give it a go? There were there were uh, a couple of women sat next to me, and um, the amount of phones that went on. First of all, as soon yeah. as it came on, I imagine that's people googling what it was. Or no, what they were doing was actually checking to see what other films were on, so they could just go into another screen. Oh, that's what they? the two women next to us were doing. They're going, "Oh, this is playing. Let's go and watch that instead." And I'm just thinking, "You're here now. You know, it's like ninety minutes Fuck of your yeah. life. Just give it a go." Now, someone in front of us, definitely, I could see IMDb. Obviously, oh, okay. hadn't heard of it, which it went away before the film started. But um, yeah, we had a few people walk out when the title card came up, mm. and then a few people left when it first started because it sort of started because you've just got like Star talking to her friends. And it sort of looked like it might be some sort of teen comedy romance. Mm. People left, and then obviously, I was assuming we got to it. Then the event happens in the film that catapults film, and then we had loads of walkouts then. Yeah, we didn't, have any, we didn't have any walkouts at the event. Our, our walkouts were all very early on. Um, and it was people very openly discussing, like, what else they would just go and see. So they were just going to go into another screen. But um, um, I just think incredibly stupid behaviour, incredibly rude behaviour. It's just like, because they've decided they don't want to watch it. They've all got their phones out and are having a conversation like we're having now. Yeah. It's just like, oh, well, we can go and watch this instead. It's like, turn your fucking phone off and shut up, you mug. That said, though, in our screening, again, this was again like half an hour in. Some guy was using his phone, and um, there was actually steward. Would that mm. be the right name? In that, and he went over and told him to put his phone away. No, yeah. First time I've ever seen that in a cinema, and that guy promptly left. 
It's not the first time I've ever seen it, but I am about 100 years older than you. So <laughs> in the old days, we used to have we used to have ladies selling ice creams halfway through as well. <laughs> I, I semi-remember intermissions. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you do. Um, so The Hate You Give. Um, it's a... Well, it's a film about hate crime, really, isn't it? Essentially, yes. Um, I didn't realise until afterwards when I was, you know, looking for an image to use for my Instagram that the hate you give spells thug. It's in the opening credits. Yeah, but it's written left to right. No, but it actually shows... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But until I'd seen it like that, I hadn't worked it out. Even though they used the letter U instead of writing U, I hadn't hadn't seen anything where it laid it um, out so the words were going the other way around like uh top to bottom rather than left to right so it spells out thug um so yeah it's, it's a story about a girl who's who's out with her friend and her friend gets shot essentially for being black for holding a hairbrush yeah um which the policeman assumes is a gun and shoots him and it's the story of her um and how she sort of like deals with the aftermath is she going to give evidence as she you know mm. the relationships with her friends with her yeah, boyfriend with the side story that although she lives in like a rundown black town her mum and dad want better for her so she goes to like quite a posh white school so mm. at the start of the film is like her saying how there's two versions of her one that goes to school and then one that goes out at the weekend so she while she's trying to deal with this turmoil of what's happened you've got obviously the people in like the black part of the town that are like up in arms about it and then you've got the people in the white part that are almost like the cops are person too he's hmm. traumatised by it and it's her dealing with like almost both sides of her personality really yeah and she doesn't she doesn't reveal that she's the witness for quite a long time so she's like at school and she hasn't told anyone that she's the witness yeah um, so she's kind of holding all of that in as well but it's her childhood friend that gets shot so uh, it's a pretty um uh, like grim watch. I mean, considering that we've had Black Klansman out this year as well, I mm. wouldn't really put it on par with that. No, Black Klansman had a different vibe, but then last year we had Detroit as well, and yeah. I thought it was more on a Detroit level. My only problem with the hate you give, um, and I thought it was amazing. I just found the ending so utterly cringy. Where they had that like standoff. No, I mean oh. the standoff was a little bit, eh. um, but it was almost like. Um, the the ending of the film so before so the ending of the film that I didn't like was like the happy montage yeah um, where they're all like you know they've got like sprinklers going off and stuff <laughs> like that I was thinking the only way this could get any more cheesy and like cringy is if her white boyfriend turns up and is like you know hugging her dad and stuff yeah. like that because she's got a white High boyfriend fives. that her dad doesn't approve of but um yeah but the ending with the the standoff with the kid with the gun it kind of put into pictures the the very sort of like the whole sort of like message of the film the fear is is that young people are going to get guns in their hands yeah and then what do you do um and then you've got this final scene with obviously like a very small child with a gun in its hand and everyone's just like oh fuck yeah like what's gonna happen Proper now like gut-wrenching at points that um, scene. i mean i think the difference between this and black clansman and even detroit is that this is made up whereas black clansman mm. and detroit are real yeah, but it's it's based on you know it's obviously pulled from. Oh, well, it's based on things that have happened, but yeah. like the exact the actual thing story. Of this yeah, there was also I remember hearing it talk, a bit of a backlash about the casting of Star that she wasn't black enough. Well, I read that as well because she sort of 
mi- not mixed race, is she? But she's quite light. Whereas in the book, she's written as a very black girl. I don't, I don't know because I haven't read the book. No, I did just, I just remember reading. I did. It. I did see an article where it had um, pictures of um, black actors that had been had the, like with makeup I guess yeah. had their skin lightened for, for bigger roles I don't know you see, you see it a lot don't you because it's the girl from Hunger Games isn't it the little girl that um, Katniss saves from oh, the game oh that star yeah oh wow all she's grown, all grown up. up now yeah. yeah I did not know that so yeah the hate you give I mean I haven't really I've been to the cinema once or twice since then I haven't really seen any sort of like any more trailers for I it? I think or it's like out that. this week or next week. I can't see that it's going to be massive. No, I don't um, think so. I think it'll be a bit of a sleeper. And I think that I was I was talking to someone about this, possibly my mum, when we came out. I think with the unlimited screenings, there are certain things that they announce where you're going to go and see it early, and there's a load of hype, and everyone's just like, "Yeah, yeah, I want to see that. I want to see that," and everyone like jumps on it. And I think there's certain titles because earlier on in the year. Love, Simon was the secret screening. Yeah. And exactly the same thing happened. People saw what film it was and they walked out. I think if they put those certain films on as an unlimited screening and advertised them, people wouldn't book. Yeah. Whereas if it's a secret screening, loads of people book because the screen was really busy. Yeah. Um, people, people book on. And yeah, you get a few walkouts, but for the most part, most people stay. Get a bit of word of mouth for the film kind of thing. Yeah, and I, th- I just think that by advertising it as a secret screening, they're going to get more people go to it than mm. if they actually advertised it. Hemel added an extra screening at the same time. I ended up doing it twice. Really? Yeah. I assume because I added so many booked it out. And that's because it's a secret screening. If mm. they'd have advertised it as the hate you give, I bet they wouldn't have even filled no. one screen. No, we only had one in St. Evanage. Um, what else have you seen? No, is, are we done with the hate you give? I was just going to say, I thought the dad character was actually quite good. Just like the way he was kind of harsh, but with a soft centre. I, I thought all the acting in it was really good. Although, mm. again, the ending, like you say, was a bit... Just a bit cringy, wasn't it? Yeah. So other than that, let me just scroll through. Halloween, 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 Halloween. <laughs> How are you Halloween? Uh, so I watched a film called Ingrid Goes West last night because I wanted to diversify. Yeah, and I um, have no clue what this so is. So I got it cheap off the HMV website. I think it was in the sale for one ninety nine. Oh, I know the film you mean. It's got What's Her Face from Aubrey Plaza. Um, Thingy Bob on it. Aubrey Plaza Parks and Elizabeth and Olsen are mm. the two males. So Aubrey Plaza is a woman in the sort of opening of the film is her going on Instagram, seeing what we assume is her friend getting married like that day and there's like a hashtag like my wedding she gets upset because she hasn't been invited to said wedding, goes to the wedding and pepper sprays the bride. Um, and then it sort of cuts to the credits and then it's like her coming out of that. And basically we find out through other people that they weren't friends. She just followed her on Instagram but felt like she knew her. And basically Aubrey Plaza is a little bit unstable. Oh, okay, that's, that's basically who yeah. I am with everyone. Uh, so then she goes to LA, goes west. Um, and oh. while she's out there, she discovers Elizabeth Olsen on Instagram, and she's a bit of an Insta-famous, you know, does the post of, oh, this restaurant's so cool, you should go there, oh, this food's amazing, the usual shit. And she's sort of trying to connect with her on Instagram. She goes places where she's tagged herself so she mm. can try and meet her, and then she bumps into her, uh, and then she kidnaps her dog. <laughs> Good grief. So that she can then call and say, oh, I found your dog, and sort of start a friendship. And basically they become friends, but it's... It's like a proper black comedy because mm. it's just 
the thing she's doing, like she then she's lying about everything. Like, oh, I've got this boyfriend. I'm doing this, and she's not doing any of it. And she keeps getting called out on it. She keeps having to like, like this guy she just meets sort of jumps into bed with because she needs a boyfriend to go away on this weekend. Mm. And it's it's a bit weird. It's very good. Um, so it's solid sort of three out of five. Just like decent to watch. Only about ninety five minutes, I think. Do you think James Gurnalist would give it a solid seven out of ten? Possibly. Um, but nice performances from the two. Uh, Wyatt Russell's in it as well, Kurt's son. Oh. Uh, he's very anti-social media, which apparently is in real life because there's bits where they talk about it. But it's just, yeah, it's a nice, easy watch. I don't know that I'd rush to watch it again, but enjoyable. Okay. Um, you still got it? Yeah. Maybe I could borrow it. Why don't you watch it last night? I'll bring it in this time. I'm sure there was something I was meant to bring with you for this time as well, but I forgot. <sighs> Who knows? And then it's just the other thing of whether I talk about Halloween now or not. But you feel I shouldn't, so maybe we should wait. The new Halloween, that is, people. I I think it would make sense that this is... I don't know if Dan's going to cut this out, or maybe we'll just leave it in for the... Uh, maybe we should ask Dan. For the, let's ask the listeners. <laughs> listeners, do you want to hear Terry's uh, thoughts on the new Halloween film now before we talk about Hellraiser? Or I think he should talk about it next week when we talk about the Halloween films. Hold on. The results are coming in. My phone's going crazy. They say next week. Fair enough. I'll talk about it next week. Next week. Um, okay, so I've watched I've watched a few bits and pieces. Um, and similar to you, um, I don't ever get sick of watching horror films. But um, And this is still a horror film. But I watched Monster House again. Um, I really, really love Monster House. It's an um, a animated... Oh, yeah, yeah um, I've got it now. I've got yeah. it now. Kid, kids horror and I think there's a, there's a couple of kids horrors Monster House and Coraline being the two main I know um, why Coraline gives thing. you the shit and that are genuinely creepy um, I don't know what the what the rating is on them I'm guessing 12 no I think they're PGs well anyway um, I mean Coraline's just messed up but um, I think Monster House is is a really decent creepy film um, I've, I've I give it like 5 out of 5 because Monster I can Monster House PG because I can watch it um over and over it's creepy it's funny um it's really enjoyable it's about these the 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 relationship with the neighbor reminds me of the relationship between kevin and the old guy in home alone where you got this old guy living mm-hmm. across the street or whatever that everyone thinks is really creepy yeah, but it's just an okay guy so there's a, there's something up with the house and the house is um eating people and things and then it turns out that the house is kind of haunted by the spirit of the old man's dead wife which is a pretty creepy premise i think and you've got these three plucky young kids (laughs) who um who go into the house to like investigate um and it's a it's a really really like enjoyable watch um i wouldn't recommend it for little kids i mean i don't know it's a pg um i'll say they're your kids do what the fuck you want with them but um i think it's a decent watch if you like if you like horror um you know and you like you like you like to laugh occasionally i think it's a jolly good watch i've got it in my collection I've would watched you describe it, it as a romp it's a romp yeah then i rewatched coco um because i bought it recently in the disney multi-buy and lucy hadn't seen it so we watched coco i've been together. listening to the soundtrack a lot giving daisy um, baths I won't go into the story of Coco because if you haven't seen Coco or know what it's about, you must be living in a cave. But I've said this many times before, possibly not on the podcast, though. If you haven't seen Coco and you get the opportunity to see it at the cinema, see it at the cinema because it is one of the most exquisite things I've ever seen on the big screen. 
it's so colourful and amazing. And I know Disney and Pixar stuff generally is, but this, I think, takes it to a whole other level. Yeah, I've only seen it on Blu-ray, but it was magnificent. I imagine it looks incredible on th- in 3D, and I don't normally say that. I don't give a shit about 3D, but I bet it looks amazing. It's so, so lovely. Um, I think it's... You know, I mean, I'm a big Disney fan anyway, but I think it's just really lovely story. Um, and Lucy did say at the end of it, she's never cried so much at a Disney film before. <laughs> um, but it is set in the land of the dead, so brace yourself. <laughs> There's some dead people in it. Um, and then I watched... So this ties it... Later on, when I do my Kex file, you'll understand why I was confused. Last episode, you watched the film Leatherface. Yes, on the Netflix. Yeah. I watched that too. Um, the Stephen Dorff one. Yeah, so started watching it. I, I wanted to pick a film that was just like really easy to watch um, because I was drunk. That seems to happen a lot to me recently, doesn't it? I seem to feel like I'm saying, oh, I wanted an easy film to watch because I was drunk. Um, so at the end of a drunken night out, I wanted to watch an easy film and I had remembered that you'd seen it but had forgotten that Stephen Dorff was in it. So when his face appeared on the screen, I was like, yes! Um, I didn't care much for the story, but I thought some of the, um, that it looked quite good. It looked quite nice. I thought some of the scenes were actually really nice. There's a really lovely scene. Oh, and the guessing who Leatherface was. Yeah. Yeah. At first I thought it was the big kid. And then you obviously when he gets Mm. off, you realize it's the other one. Um, but there's a really lovely scene in the, towards the end, hashtag spoiler coming up where he lops that girl's head off. Yeah. And he's cut, he's cut her head off and he's stood there and he looks up at the sky and there's this sh- and he's behind him is trees with all the moonlight coming through the trees. And it's a really lovely shot. And I was thinking, this is a shit film, but it looks really good. And some of the gore... How often does a sentence finishing a lovely shot start with when he lops that girl's yeah. head off? But it, was, it, was, it just looked really nice. And some of the scenes with the blood, like this, you know... If you don't like gore and stuff, this is probably completely lost on you. And why are you even listening to this podcast? But anyway, um, some of the That's scenes it. with push like, off the one listener we do have. <laughs> some of the scenes with the blood were so like I thought they were so well shot and so the so well like lit and coloured. It just I wonder if looked alcohol really played amazing. any sort of part. No, in I wasn't. Your I wasn't like massively pissed or anything, but I just thought it falls into the girls allowed video category for me. Pop it on. Put it on mute. Yeah, I can see Listen that. Listen to something else. I just thought it looked okay. What did you think about them all crawling out of that cow carcass? Far too small a space, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Must have been a TARDIS. Then I've... Everything else I've watched is my Kex file or related to the episodes, but I did go and see Venom. Oh, yeah, I saw this as well. So, I went to... So... Regular listeners to the show will re- remember last episode, Terry gave a review of Venom. And what was your general feeling on Venom? Dog shit. Yeah. So Terry's phrase to me, my dad thinks this is hilarious, by the way, when you said you dodged a turd-shaped <laughs> bullet. Um, I, so Dan from the Mother Pod and myself decided to go along and see Venom to see if it was as shit as a lot of people had told us it was. However, I have had a few people say, it's okay. Uh, so we thought we'd go along and make up our own mind. Now, I just quite enjoyed it. Um, in a shit way or in a good way? I quite enjoyed it. Um, I would say, when that Blu-ray goes 5 for 30, I'd probably <laughs> buy it. I wouldn't buy it full price, of course. Um, it's no Disney, but um, I, I enjoyed it. It's, it's the most I've enjoyed Tom Hardy in a long time. 
Um, I I thought it was funny. I liked the action shots. I think that probably the work. I didn't think Michelle Williams was bad in it. I thought her hair was bad. Oh yeah, Why? Hair, dreadful wig. Why have they got her in a wig? Because she's got to be the damsel in distress with long hair, I guess. But doesn't she, doesn't she got hair like that anyway? No, her hair's really short. She always has a pixie cut. Oh, terrible wig. Um, but and, and some of her lines were a little bit cringy. But I didn't I didn't think she was terrible in it. I just thought she she, she was all right. Um, but no, I I enjoyed it. I mean, I you know me, I don't really. Have, have much interest in like the Marvel universe in the sense of like digging in deep. Yeah. So Dan turned to me and said, I wouldn't have minded a bit of Spider-Man. I didn't, I didn't care. There was no Spider-Man. And, I, and it, it wasn't until you and Rich had gone to see it uh, that Rich kind of explained to me the, like the whole sort of like Venom backstory because I didn't, I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know about emo Spider-Man or anything like that. I mean, so I don't, the thing is, though, I don't think Spider-Man works in this Venom universe. Apparently, they toned down the gore, the language, and the violence so that they could cross over. But I still don't think you could cross this over with like the Spider-Man from like Civil War and the Avengers. Oh, no, 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 no. It just wouldn't all. work at all. So they might as well have gone hell for leather and properly gone for the guts gore mm. rather than going for the PG-13 shite that they delivered. Um, but I, I liked it. I... Th- I I didn't get why you thought it was so shit. I enjoyed it. Thought it was okay. Thought the soundtrack seemed okay as well. Yeah. So, um, but did you notice I purposely didn't rate it on Letterboxd? Yeah. Because I was waiting. I wasn't sure if you'd given it zero. Yeah, I thought you'd think I'd given it zero. But, um, no, no, it I had its it. moments, but. So, because my mum wants to go and see it as well, and I said I'd go and watch it again with her. And you wouldn't go and see Tomb Raider with me because you didn't like it. I really didn't like that. Either. I just didn't enjoy that. At least I've got Tom Hardy and Michelle Williams in this. <sighs> yeah, I think I prefer Venom to Tomb Raider. No, I didn't. Yeah, what else? Tomb Raider. Is, I don't own Tomb Raider, but five for thirty, I might be interested. All right, all right. So, we done? Yeah, I'm all done. Unless we want to talk about the Doctor, which we've just watched. Well. We could talk about the Doctor now. We talk about Halloween next episode, which is what I've already decided we were going to do. <laughs> um, so what did you think of this episode of Doctor Who, Sonia? So for the listeners, because this might be slightly out of whack, it was the Rosa Parks episode. Well, this episode will be coming out oh, yeah, of course. days oh, yeah. afterwards. Yeah. So yep. this episode will be coming out before episode four of Doctor Who. So we've just watched episode three, which is the Rosa Parks episode. Um, I really liked it. Um, I, I was... I was interested. I liked. I mean, I love. I love the new like sidekicks. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Um, companion. Well, companions, I think they're calling yeah. them travelers, traveling partners, or something. They've always been called companions. companions up to yeah. now. Um, I liked. Um, I liked them in this episode. Um, Bradley Walsh is like really growing on me. Yeah, I was really skeptical when he was cast, but I feel like he's. He's like the one grounding it because the, the the young ones are sort of just going along with oh yeah mm. with the doctor with time travelers and he's just like we're in 1955 and that line about we are going to eat now aren't we we haven't got time she says that a lot mm. I just of the three uh, companions or sidekicks whatever you want to call them I I like him the most um, I still love the doctor I think she's great um, I'm really really enjoying her I liked the story I liked having a, a 
historical one or yeah, an, I enjoy, an historical one. We haven't had one for a long time, especially one that's like this historical, if that makes sense, like an important historical moment. Mm. There's lots of ones where like they're in World War Two, they're here, they're there, whereas this was like what like a seminal moment in human history, which is like the whole point of the episode. Mm. It was just, I don't know, for me, it was a bit dull with like the villain being someone who can't hurt anyone, can't kill anyone, and he's just sort of loitering in a biker jacket. Hmm. Just seemed a little bit. It would have almost been better if that hadn't a bit. If they'd have removed him and it had been when they first landed, they accidentally rearranged it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like something they did stopped it and then they had to go about and re realign it I think would have possibly been better yeah but I really liked it. I thought it was a good episode to give the companion something to do because obviously you've got a black companion an Indian companion in the middle of like the deep south of America what during... was quite interesting as well was that they didn't know where the girl was from did they yeah they called her Mexican at one point she said oh they obviously don't get a lot of Pakistanis around here because they thought she was Mexican and she didn't know did she she was just like where do I sit on the bus yeah. Does am I white am I black yeah because they've got the the bus separated to, to white and coloured. And she's like, when they say coloured, do they just mean black? And she didn't yeah. know where to sit, did she? And it was, no. it, was quite, um, it was quite interesting. But one thing that I was quite impressed with, and we talk about this quite a bit when we talk about like, um, like shit accents on things, and sometimes yeah. it's funny. And obviously you got, well, not obviously, they, they might have been from Alabama, but they, they're using a lot of British actors. Yeah. But they set the episode in Alabama. So they're doing Alabama accents yeah. and I thought they all held up all right oh yeah I thought I mean, they were pretty I'm decent. not sure if it was filmed over there or filmed over here and made to look like Alabama but there's n- say there was no sort of weak link with the accents I don't think no I thought it was all right Jason Statham take note <laughs> uh yeah I thought, I thought it was a solid episode no, I'm, so, I'm enjoying this I'm really really enjoying her God, I, no, I she's was in really no good. doubt that I would love I her I love her sort of the excited look she has in her face just like when they realize they're they've just met Rosa Parks her face is just like oh yeah and it's like yeah that's like the glint in the eye that like Capaldi and Smith mm. and Tennant and all had but no I think really good episode and yeah enjoying it as you say really really good still not sure about the new interior of the TARDIS but we mm. haven't seen it a lot yet I no. feel like the more we see it I might grow to like it yeah yeah not sure um so from the joy of the TARDIS to uh the Lament Configuration and Hellraiser. Yeah. So, our horror icons that we've chose, obviously we've talked about Chucky and the Child's Play movie, and we've talked about Jason and Friday the 13th, and then we decided to finish with our own two personal favourite franchises. Um, and we are going to call them franchises, because apparently Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't like the fact that Halloween's called a franchise. Well... We can get into that when we get to Halloween, oh, but basically okay. you've got multiple timelines, like the new film. Well, you just said we can get into it when we yeah. get to it, so don't bore me with it now. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> one um, of those nights. Yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit, I'm a bit hungover today. Um, so yeah, my my personal favourite horror franchise uh, is a franchise is Hellraiser, um, and so are you pointing at something? No. Oh. Um, another question that um, I think we covered it uh, when we were talking about Child's Play and Friday the 13th and they're, they're different types of horror aren't they Yeah, those two films but um, someone said to me I was watching Hellraiser um, and they said that they don't find those films scary um, at all and, and I said the previous um, episodes that I didn't find Child's Play scary Yeah, and I don't find 
the Hellraiser films scary. I think there's some creepy bits in them. But I think with me, because and I remember watching these films at quite an early age, not like a you know, not like like a four year old or anything like that. <laughs> but I think certainly as I was sort of once I'd started secondary school and I was sort of like discovering that I was interested in serial killers and horror movies and heavy metal and you know just generally being when you became different as miserable as I could be. Um, Hellraiser was one of the first films that I like really latched onto, and I think it's just the whole like imagery of it all mm. and I just thought that Pinhead looked really cool yeah, and it was more very different to everything else because by that point so this is what late 80s Hellraiser mm. yeah you've, you're probably on Jason 5 Hell, Halloween 2 or 3 so it was you were in the time of just like the same old shit getting churned out over and over again and then this comes on which is something completely different because it's not your standard slasher it's I mean the Cenobites are almost so they're almost like the shark in Jaws, aren't they? They appear, they disappear. They're not <clears throat> the constant throughout the film. The main narrative of the first one is obviously Larry, Frank and Kirsty, And Julia? Okay, so Hellraiser's my one. So I'm going to be doing the bulk of the talking on this. Um, as Terry, <laughs> Sorry to have an Terry's, opinion. Terry just fluffed over. That wasn't an opinion. That was just you forgetting people's names because I'd never do that. Um so yeah, as, ter- as Terry just um, fluffed over, the Cenobites aren't really in the first one. So for those of you who have not seen um, the Hellraiser movies, there's the story of the first um, Hellraiser um, you've, is, is centred around a family, really. It's a, it's a story about a dysfunctional family. You've got um, Larry and Julia, who are married. Yep. You've got Kirsty, who is Larry's daughter. Julia is... Uh, Kirsty's stepmom and Larry and Julia have just moved into this old house which um, did it belong to his family? I think it was like yeah. his mother's house or it something. It must have been his mother's house because his brother Frank uh, when they when they start moving this stuff in it turns out he's been squatting there so he's been staying in the house. And they talk about selling this stuff inside and he's just like oh Frank won't mind because he'll get the money from it so it's yeah. obviously both of theirs. So um, so Julie is obviously unhappy in the marriage. She's not satisfied. And then through a series of flashbacks, we see that she's had an affair with uh, Brother Frank um, in the past. On the um, wedding day, is it? Or certainly literally on the wedding dress? Yeah, so there, there's a, I think that's just um, a bit of symbolism there. Um, I didn't get from it that it was it happened on the wedding day. But um, so Larry's the very sort of like uh, dependable, solid, yeah. um, but ultimately quite, he's very steady, but, but quite dull. And then Frank's the sort of like good looking, dangerous one, blah, blah, blah. Um, so she enjoys, um, she has this relationship with, with Frank where, you know, they have a lot of sex, but they the flashbacks serve um, to really sort of like impress upon us how much she cares for Frank and how what deep feelings mm. she has she for him. She probably wishes she was with Frank and not Larry. But it's important to for the viewer to realise how much she cares for Frank because it will then make sense why she does what she does. Um, and then through another series of flashbacks, you see that Frank has um, found this box, this this puzzle box, where, you know, because he, he like, he's, he, he's dangerous, he likes you know, living life on the edge, he does drugs and stuff, and he wants to experiment and do all these different things, and he basically just wants to push himself and his body to these other limits. So he gets his, gets hold of this box, 
That's um, one of the creep or bits that sort of set me off when he literally gets the box right at the start of the film. The state of his nails is just like disgusting. Yeah, I mean he's just he's just grotty. Yeah. He's just horrible. He's just you know he's just sleeping on floors and just fucking his way through life basically. But yeah, so he gets hold of the box and he basically opens up a, a gate to hell um, and is um, literally torn apart. Yeah. Um, hooks on chains. Yeah, hooks on chains, which um, apparently the American audience don't like hooks on chains. A lot of a lot of things had to be cut. <laughs> um, really? Yeah, apparently it's a thing. Um, do we see the Cenobites at that early stage? We don't, do we? We no. just see the hooks. So you see, you see Frank being like ripped apart and um, and his sort of descent, if you like, then into hell. So. Um, then what happens is when Julia and um, Larry move into the house, as they're moving in, Larry catches his hand on a nail. Well, that sets me off as well, that. Yeah, that's another scene. So he catches the back of his hand on a nail, which he doesn't do well with blood, so he goes upstairs. So what you've got is Julia upstairs in a room thinking about the time she spent with Frank, yeah? So she's just up there kind of thinking, oh, God, you know, he was so hot and he was so great. Larry appears bleeding, and he bleeds onto the floor that brother Frank has died on. And this then starts the whole regeneration process of Frank coming back to life. Um, and you've got some really like amazing scenes of, of Frank coming back to life. Oh, fantastic. And it's just these brilliant, brilliant effects. Like all practical effects again, they did them all by filming stuff backwards. Yeah. So you've got things that are basically filmed either melting or collapsing and then when they play them in reverse they're actually Growing. building mm. or inflating or whatever you see frank's heart um beating again and that His is brain and that's the heart beating is literally someone just blowing through a tube and literally inflating um the heart and you know the way the body comes out of like almost out of the floorboards and it's like it's almost like a baby being born. It almost gives like a baby's cry once yeah. it's... Um, he like screams as he breaks the floorboards, doesn't he? But it's, it's almost like a baby's scream, isn't it? And he's sort of like... So he's like... He's there and, you know, this is when you sort of like get the the beginnings of the Frank with no skin. Um, you know, and then, you know, then Kirsty's kind of um, introduced to us then. So she's like... Larry's daughter, Julia's stepdaughter, and you kind of see the difficult relationship between Julia and Kirsty. Larry's kind of stuck in the middle of his daughter and his step um, and his wife. You know, he's just trying to please everyone. So during a um, like a housewarming party, I guess, isn't it? Julia goes upstairs, and that's when the um, uh, Frank kind of makes himself known to Julia by grabbing her around the ankle. And another brilliant set of effects here is the skinless Frank is played by a guy who's so like super skinny that when they covered him in like latex and all the effects to make him look like skinless Frank, it kind of makes him the same size as Frank. Yeah, with he skin. didn't look humongous. Yeah, he didn't look he didn't look bigger. Obviously, putting all those effects onto the guy playing Frank would make him look too big. So they've got this like really gaunt guy playing him. And it look, it just looks really good. It's this guy mm. covered in makeup <clears throat> and whatever they put on them to make them look sticky K-Y. or wet. Um, it just works really well. Because so, it's that first thing where he's got like the gangly legs that don't quite work. He's like dragging himself yeah. across the floor. And he grabs Julia by the ankle and at first she's like repulsed and then the more he sort of like talks to her 
me sort of like basically telling her, you know, oh, I need blood. So now I can, in his gravelly tones. I can be sort of how I was before sort of thing. Um, and at first, Julie is like appalled and doesn't really know what to say. And she sort of goes away and comes back. And she says, um, she, has, she says to him, I will. And it's almost as like their wedding yeah. vows, isn't it? Um, so then the film sort of like, so as far as I'm concerned, this film is Julia's film. Julia is the oh, lead yeah, yeah. in this. Um, and I think, um, God, what's the woman's name? I had it, I had it all written down. Um, you can look it up whilst yeah. I'm so annoyed. I can't remember her name. Um, I was talking to my dad about it just yesterday. Um, because she's English, isn't she? Yeah. So she's English as well. So I love, you know, like a, a traditional English baddie, but as Claire Higgins, that's it. I knew it was, I knew the second bit began with an H. So as she, so she starts she starts killing guys basically mm. to bring Frank back to life. And as she starts doing this, you see her like almost transform into like this kind of like downtrodden, a little bit frumpy uh, woman. And she starts to wear like her, she's got like a quiff in her hair and that gets bigger and her makeup gets more. The shoulder pads on her suits. Yeah, like shoulder pads get bigger. She wears dark glasses. Her makeup becomes just more mm. extravagant. And it just becomes easier. The first one takes her a while and she's a bit, yeah, she just. And then by the end, she's just smacking them. She's just like, yeah, luring these guys into the house, giving them a whack over the head with a hammer, and you know, then Frank does the rest until eventually you've got like an almost realised Frank, which is basically skinless Frank, and he just needs a skin now, um, which is where poor Larry comes in. <laughs> oh, Larry! So this probably like, so this is going to be tricky for Julia because essentially what what happens next is that is that they kill they kill poor Larry to use Larry's skin to put on Frank so Julia's torn now because she's just kind of like she likes the passion of being with the brother but it still looks like Larry but she must sort of like Larry in the first place but um what I really love is the actor who plays Larry goes from Playing Larry to then to then playing Frank and the yeah. the change in him and a bit of a mix away. as well when Kirsty's around where he's trying to hide it a yeah. little bit and it's like it's almost like he dialed Larry down so much so that when he could when he became Frank he could like dial it right mm. up and be this like awful character but there's a scene where Kirsty sees skinless Frank and Frank says uh, the line "Come to Daddy" to yeah. her which is. Like, which is important because then later on, that's how she realises her dad is not her dad mm. because he says to her, come to daddy. And her dad would never say that to her. So she realises, fucking hell, this isn't my dad. This is Uncle, Uncle Frank, Frank wearing, my dad. wearing my dad's skin. So if I could just go off on a slight tangent here, slight little side note. And I'm wondering, as he's editing it, if, if Dan has any insight on this or... If um, anyone listening has any insight. So the line, come to daddy, which is quite a big line in Hellraiser. And, you know, if you like Hellraiser, the, the come to daddy line is particularly creepy and just like sticks in your head. The Aphex twin song, come to daddy. I was trying to work out if it was in any way inspired by um, by Hellraiser. Because have you ever seen the video to come to daddy? Is that the one where their faces are superimposed on everything? Yeah, it's like a super, super fucking creepy video. Um, did you try literally just Googling it? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Of course I did. Um, 
But the the lyrics to come to Daddy now brace yourself because this is gonna we're gonna get deep now. Okay. I'm not um, ready for this on a Sunday evening. And I just wondered if Hellraiser in any way inspired the Aphex Twin song Come to Daddy. You ready for the lyrics? I'm ready. I want your soul. I will eat your soul. I want your soul. I will eat your soul. I want your soul. I will eat your soul. I want your soul. I will eat your soul. <laughs> come to daddy. Come to daddy. Come to daddy. Come to daddy. And repeat. Um, I'd say there's a high a high possibility. But I reckon, I reckon that that's probably, yeah. Of course I mean, I, all it needed was, I'll tear your soul apart. Yeah. Um, but I reckon, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it. But, you know, I know the film. I know the song. Maybe they I were writing thought, the song high as fuck and they had Hellraiser on in the background and it just happened. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my little side note. That's my little, maybe if anyone knows the answer, maybe it's not connected in any way and it's just if a coincidence. If the Apex Twins are listening in, if you can let us know. Yeah. Um, I think Apex Twin is just one man. But anyway, that's, that's another thing. Um, so... That's how Kirsty realizes um, that her dad is not her dad, and then we start this whole thing of like, "Oh my God, what's going to happen?" You know. But and so Kirsty gets hold of the box, doesn't she? Yeah, because um, Frank needs it. He won't let it out of his sight because she like throws it through the window to get rid of it, doesn't she? And like chases yeah. after it. She gets hold of the box. She opens the box, summons the Cenobites. Then we see another beautiful shot. I'm going to share these on my Instagram because. I've got some amazing shots because what I did do, I did ages ago, is I treated myself to the Arrow video box set of the yeah, first. Yeah, I saw that on your side. The first three, and I have to say, I've watched, um, I've certainly watched the first Hellraiser more times than I can count. And I've seen the second and third one quite a few times as well, on DVD. Um, and the quality of those Arrow Blu-rays. I've, I've got the first one as a single Blu-ray, and it is phenomenal. Something else. I mean, it is so so good. Um, and some, and I just took stills of my paused TV um, because I could not get over the the quality um, of the restoration that they'd done. Um, but you just got some really lovely shots of the Cenobites for like properly for the yeah. first time, and then coming through the gate because it's all like where the the walls like get backlit and it's like mm. the light pouring mm. in looks amazing. Um, and you see the Cenobites, you've got Pinhead who is just the lead Cenobite, you've got the female Cenobite. Um, you've got the chattery one, the fat one. The chatterer who's my favourite and Butterball who's the fat one, yeah, who's played by a thin guy which is kind of funny. Um, and the chatterer who's always been my uh, favourite Cenobite from the first film and obviously he's got his like real like his lips are all pulled back and you can see his gums and his teeth and stuff but um, his eyes are all covered as well so the the guy playing the chatterer couldn't like see or hear anything when he was in that he didn't a couple of little holes for him no he had all his senses deprived apparently so there you go nice little aside there um, and Essentially what happens is Kirsty gets hold of the box and she... Um, she trades her life for Frank's. Yeah, basically. And she um, fiddles around with the box, you know, opens it, closes it, pushes it down a different way and they all get sucked back in. Um, and there endeth the first film. There's a few um, characters... Oh, no, you've missed out the homeless guy who sets himself on I'm just fire. about oh. to... You said there ends the first yeah, film. Yeah, and then I said there's a few other bits I want to talk about. So 
that's the basic sort of like premise of the film. I say basic. I've gone into quite a bit of detail there. But um, yeah, so there's a locust man, which isn't explained until right at the end. So there's this... Kirsty's walking home one night and she sees this guy who looks like a homeless guy and he just kind of gives her the creeps, doesn't he? Yeah. And um, we don't really know why he's there. She's just like, oh, that guy's there giving me the creeps. And then she works in a pet store and he turns up at the pet store and starts eating locusts. Yep. Uh, which is kind of grim and they're um, all in his beard and stuff and that looked really horrible. And apparently Clive Barker wanted to do that role but there wasn't enough time mm. um, to get him covered in locusts and you know have him back doing his other jobs. Um, and then right at the end of the film we actually, he appears again. So Kirsty and her boyfriend have gone, um, are they going to throw the box on a bonfire? They do throw the box on a bonfire and Locust Man turns up yet again and that's when we find out that he's actually the... She's like the keeper of the, the box. The keeper isn't of he? the yeah. box, yeah. And he turns into like this weird, like winged creature and goes into the Made flames. entirely of bone. Yeah, he goes into the flames to retrieve the box and fly off with it. And that's actually where the film ends. Um, yeah. But yeah, really, um, I love it. I think it looks amazing. I still think, certainly now that it's been restored, it looks bloody oh, it well a- good. Um, so a two and three is good to like, mm, clear up on that mm, as well. Because um, I think number three, well, when we get to it, but number three is spe- looks especially shit on DVD. Um, and so that was an absolute delight to watch on the new Blu-ray restoration because I was just like, oh, my God. I, c- it, I feel like I've been watching it with, like, um, like Vaseline smeared on my <laughs> eyes for years. Um, but there was a few interesting um, little things Um that I found out about the film. Um, the first one is right towards the end where Larry, um, not Larry because it's the actor playing Larry, but where Frank is being like pulled apart again. Mm-hmm. And you've got the guy, um, is his name Andrew something? The guy who plays Larry? Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, as you said, the guy in Child's Play who's the hairdresser. Mm, Andrew Robinson. That's it. The, Frank, Frank's last line... Um, is Jesus wept as he's yeah. being ripped apart and apparently that guy just made it up on the spot um, but that's, it's a great like last scene for him um, Doug Bradley nearly took the role of the removal man yeah because he wanted his face on screen yeah, didn't he because he was going to be all covered up um, but luckily for us he took the role of Pinhead you might have it on there as well but they had like a rap party and he went and thought everyone hated him because no one spoke to him, but it's because no one knew who he was because hmm. everyone only saw him as Pinhead. Yeah, had his makeup on. Um, and there was, during the filming, there were a few people that didn't really like the title Hellraiser and there was a, they were sort of like, I think Clive Barker basically turned around and was just like, well, okay, then come up with a, with a better title. And someone came back with the title, what length some women will go to for a good fuck. <laughs> um... <laughs> And I thought that was quite, that was quite true because essentially that's kind of what the film's about. It's yeah. about Julia going to these extreme lengths to bring Frank back to life so she can sleep with him. Yeah, whilst wearing the skin of her husband. Of her dead husband. I mean, it doesn't get any more romantic than that. Because mm, the book's not called Hellraiser, is it? I've read the book. I'm sure the book's called Hellbound. Yes. Um... But yeah, obviously it's um, it's all based on that. 
and um, it's all billed, isn't it, as uh, Clive Barker's yeah. Hell Rates and stuff. Name above the title. Yep. His first, kind of weird, I think, like this is his first film as a director. Mm. And just like how visual it is and how just amazing it looks, even on like a shoddy version. Just like his vision for that film. You can't imagine anyone else having done that film as well. I mean, like, really, like, watching it, watching it again, like I say, I've watched this film loads and loads of times, but watching it again specifically for this, watching it, I think it's different when you watch it and you kind of are making notes as you go along, because yeah. that's what we do, don't we? When we re-watch the films of the pod, we're sitting there and we're making notes on them, which is why I've got these little things like, oh, we don't know who the locust man is until right at the very end, whereas before I was just kind of like watching it and going along with it, and now I'm actually watching it and thinking, kind of going, well, okay, well, why is that and why is that? Um, and I just watching it again with these sort of like fresh eyes and stuff I really appreciate it maybe watching it again with the uh, restored vision, uh, versions does make a difference as well so like seeing that the care, the care and everything that's taken into um, the effects and certainly the way the Cenobites look the first time but um, the whole thing with like Frank coming back to life that is amazing and, I'm um, sure I remember one of my One of my favourite scenes of him is when he's sat there with no skin, but he's having a cigarette and he's got a white shirt on. Why yeah. a white shirt? But it's just like, he's got no skin. He's getting that shirt filthy. He's covered in blood. Those stains won't come out. But he's having a cigarette as well. I just love yeah. it. I love it. No, I was like, I'm sure I read somewhere that they basically finished the film or Clive Barker wanted more money for that scene of him coming back to life. Mm. So he filmed everything except that using up the entire budget for the film and then went, I need more money. And obviously seeing the film, they're like, okay, yeah, you've got to finish it. And they gave him the more money. Whereas if he'd just done it and got it shit, they wouldn't have done it. But he deliberately spent all of the money and then asked for more, mm. having made the rest of the film so that he could get that big budget. Um, yeah. And this is... So as we said right at the start, talking about this um, this film, the Cenobites are actually hardly in it at all. Yeah. Um and when the, when we see the credits, um, Doug Bradley is credited as lead Cenobite. He yeah. hasn't gained his name yet, um, or rather, it's not it's not actually the name of the character. It's kind of the name that the fans have given yeah. the character. Um, so yeah, he's lead Cenobite in this. Um, and then we go on to Hellraiser two. Yeah. Um, what do you think of Hellraiser two? So I had fairly decent memories of it but watching it back it's not well it's not not good but it's just very confused isn't it It doesn't really seem to know what it wants to be the ending makes little to no sense um i've got some real issues with the ending but let's start with uh let's start at the beginning um (laughs) the so hellraiser 2 carries on pretty much from where hellraiser 1 finishes so at the end of hellraiser 1 kirsty is obviously she's She's not in a good way. Um, <laughs> she's not a happy bunny, but she's telling she's telling stories of this this box that demons come out of, and that her, her uncle her, skinned her dad. Her uncle's come back to life, and is living in the, with the skin of her dad, and that therefore, in her mind, her dad is now in hell because Frank's been sent to hell. Mm. And then we start, um, and so because of this, people obviously think she's mad, so she's sent to a psychiatric hospital. And when the second film opens, it opens with her in this hospital and it's literally, it's got to be a day or two has yeah. passed. Well, they, they're talking about all the bodies in the house, so they've yeah. obviously got into there, so it's literally a couple of days. Because then there's a scene where they're still in the house finding bodies, so it yeah. can't be more than a few days. And that house was in Cricklewood. 
That was one thing I was going to say to you. Is it set in England? Because it seems no. to be like ambiguous because there's no, some because people the co- talking American. No, because I think the reason... It was obviously filmed the, in the, England. The police have guns. So, yeah. no, it's, I think it's set in America. Um, I always assumed it was set in America. Yeah. Watching it. I, I think just because it looks English, mm. it, it confused me. Um, so... Yeah, we start in the hospital and you've got um, Kirsty there having a bit of a rough time of it. Yeah, um, I found it weird as well. She's literally just woken up and you've got a cop interrogating her without yeah. any medical staff at all. Yeah. So you've got the cop waiting in the room for her, waiting for her to wake up. And then the doctor comes to who's looking after her, Dr. Channard. Um, Lovely English accent he's got. Who we later find out is obsessed with the occult. Mm-hmm. Um, and obsessed with the box, um, and obsessed with uh, Kirsty's story because he wants to. He, he wants to try it for himself, basically, yeah. um, and so Kirsty is insisting that the mattress that Julia died on. Because okay, one thing I didn't mention in the first one is Frank kills Julia, stabs her, and says nothing personal, babe. Um, and she dies on this mattress and Kirsty keeps saying, because she's seen that Frank has been brought back to life, she's like, you must destroy that mattress. You must destroy that mattress because she doesn't want Julia brought back yeah. to life. Well, Dr. Channard obviously sends for the mattress and has it sent to his office. Um, well, now it's his house, not the office. He make, He's very clear that it must go to the house. Oh, is that happening at his house? I yeah. always, Oh, okay. So I thought that scene took place in his office and then what happened he then transported to his house so what happens with the mattress is um he's got the mattress he's got one of the mattress which is covered in julia's blood it looks quite disgusting yeah and he gets one of the mental patients from the hospital who believes he who's covered in all these sores and he believes he can see maggots yeah, and bugs in a- crawling in and out of his skin yeah. and i find that quite creepy Yep. I did not like that scene at all when his makeup just... was really good as well because yeah. like, he literally like scratched himself to pieces already. One of the men, so there's a scene where Dr. Channard is walking down, um, like looking in all the padded rooms, isn't he? And I think he's mm. obviously trying to pick the person he wants to put on the mattress. But one of one of the screaming men is the guy who played Skinless Frank in the first one. But anyway, that's that's an aside. But he he, does, he picks this guy who obsessively like scratches at his skin because he thinks he's got bugs and maggots in his skin. So he gets this guy and pops him on the mattress. And lets him have a good scratch. And then he hands him a razor blade. <laughs> um, because the guy wants to cut these bugs out of his skin. And you see this guy just go at himself with a razor blade. Now, This is where it started to get uncomfortable on the bus. Yeah, I can imagine. Starting to get uncomfortable for me on the sofa. So these films I don't find scary. But I find some of the scenes quite gory to watch yeah. and that's one of the things because I don't I don't like to see maggots and bugs and things not crawling in and out of skin but when this guy starts cutting at his own skin to get rid of these bugs yeah it's it's all effects and stuff you know it's not real but the guy's it still going creepy. it looks real so he's cutting himself up therefore bleeding all over the mattress um this brings Julia back to life she basically wraps her arms and legs around him through the mattress and eats him through the mattress, essentially, doesn't she? She kind of absorbs well, sort of his ha- body. Well, they have a bit of a cuff kerfuffle, don't they? Because yeah. 
Dr. Chanar's assistant is hiding behind yeah. the curtain at this point and the crazy guy gets ever so close to reaching the curtain, yeah. thus unveiling him, but then Julia... She, like, inserts her hand into the back of his head, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah, and apparently that was another scene that um, was considered a bit too... Like, almost too much. Yeah. So you think, got all these fucked-up things going going on, but her inserting her hand like that... we never see what Frank... Because I always assumed watching the first one, because I'm assuming that's what Frank must have done, that Frank was literally just, like, stealing from people. So it'd be like, I need your heart. He'd rip their heart out and put it in their, his chest. I always thought he was, like... Sucking the spinal fluid. That's always what I thought. <laughs> with a maybe little I'm, straw. Well, maybe I'm getting confused with that South Park episode, but that's kind of what I. That's kind of the vibe that I had. But yeah, he might be stealing. That's what I should do. Whereas she just seems to sort of put her hand in the back of their head and sort of absorb. That's why out I. Of them. That's why I was thinking of the spinal fluid, maybe because of her where she put mm. her hand. But anyway, that's what. Um, that's what. That's what she does. So that there's all this Frank's bleeding. A terrible mess. Yeah. And again, you've got a different actress playing. I was about to say, is it? It's a it's a much slimmer actress, so that when she's in the full body suit of skinless Julia, she's the same size as Julia with skin. Um, so Channard has got skinless Julia at his house. He he wraps her up, doesn't he, in bandages, like a mummy. Like a mummy. And she has a cigarette as well. Because she sees herself in the mirror and sort of, you know, and is appalled and screams and it's just like, ugh, it's the, it's the worst. Um, but she comes back and she comes back looking like Julia, doesn't she? So she eventually, because he then starts bringing patients mm. left, right and centre and she keeps, and yeah, she eventually basically gets her own skin. Yeah. But then maybe Frank would have got his own skin, but they wanted him to have Larry's yeah. skin so that he was Larry and not Frank, because I'm assuming Frank was probably wanted by millions of people for doing things that he should or have they, doing. Or they might have rushed... Um, Frank's reanimation. Do you know what I mean? It might have been a case oh, of yeah, like, I can't wait. Because Kirsty found out, didn't she? So they probably yeah. needed to move it along. Um, whereas you know, Ch- Doctor Channard had sort of like a endless resource, didn't he? Of yeah. like these bodies, which I would like to see what he was saying at the office. Yeah, yeah I'm just taking another one. Um, but you know, he, he kind of had all these bodies which could disappear without anyone really giving a shit. So yeah. maybe Julia did sort of just grow her own skin back. Um, and they kind of like manipulate each other, don't they? She, he wants to see yeah, she's what like she's said, seen. I'll take you if you if you help me. I'll show you what I've seen. Yeah, and at the whole, you know, and then also you've got Kirsty, who's got these, you know, having these nightmares and stuff, and she she wants to rescue her dad from hell because she's having nightmares of like yeah. her dad, a skinless father, mm. asking for help. And then you've got the other character, the girl Tiffany. Who doesn't yep. speak, but is very good at solving puzzle boxes. Hmm. Conveniently. I, I wonder what possible use she could have later in the film. Um, so you've got Silent Tiffany and Kirsty who are going to, you know, battle evil. And then you've got Dr. Channard and Julia, who are Don't evil. forget his assistant, who now believes Julia's wild tales, having seen Julia climb out of a mattress. Mm. Um, so he helps, like, break Kirsty out, doesn't he, basically? Yeah. Because she's still in the nut house. Um, and she goes back home, doesn't she? Where did she uh, go? I, I can't remember. I can't remember. I only watched it the bloody other day. Anyway. No, so did I. Um, but they go into like a like a labyrinth, don't they? Oh, no. So they go to his house to try and stop her, to try and kill him and Julia. But then Julia kills the assistant. assistant. And then they're sort of, they're on the run from that point. Yeah. But they go, they end up in this sort of like labyrinth, yeah, don't Tiffany they? Yeah, Tiffany opens the box. 
Um, and they end up in this labyrinth, which I kind of get into via uh, Kirsty's room. Um, and it's, it all goes a bit weird. The Thyophan. In there. Um, so one of my favourite scenes in the, in, the, uh, in the labyrinth is when Kirsty is being chased. Tie a knot. Uh, this is something I want to point out about these films. Kirsty's being chased down this corridor by this like big wormy character. That's the first film, isn't it? Is it the first one? I've got it in my first film. And you can see the trolley in the background. You can see it being pushed along, yeah. Yeah. Um, Which was... I'm sure that's the first one. Yeah, I think it's the first one. Now you've said it, yeah. Um, And it's just so... I remember always thinking that that creature was, like, really creepy. (laughs) But every time you see it, you can see it's clearly on a trolley. And And the guy's legs pedalling away in the background. Yeah, pushing it along. Um, But something that I've noticed about these films is how slowly everyone runs. Mm. So when Kirsty runs away, and then Joey in the third film... Oh, I've got it written down for Joey. It's such a casual run. They, li- they literally just do a light jog away. Yeah. It's like they don't know how to run away from danger. They no. gently jog away. Even Michael Myers would catch them. They gently jog away. Um, so they're all kind of... Uh, Kirsty's in like her own version of hell, I guess, in this yeah. labyrinth. She ends up going back to this is a this was a weird scene which was kind of in there. So it becomes quite apparent. Basically, the guy who played Larry, for whatever reasons, I think for contact contract reasons, he they couldn't come get back. him back in the film. But you got the, the whole point of the second film for Kirsty is that she's trying to rescue her dad and she's trying mm. to get back to her daddy and all of this because. We're never going to see him because the actor's not there, you know. But there's a scene where she goes back to a version of their old house. Yeah. You know, and all these things start happening and stuff. And it's almost like the 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 scene is sort of like almost misplaced there because she never... I was not sure why she thought her dad was in hell because he hadn't done anything wrong. It was Frank that had done everything. I think it's because Frank was wearing her dad's skin. So she was getting these nightmares where she was mm. seeing her dad in hell. And, but no, that's exactly right. She, in her mind, she thinks her dad's in hell. But as you quite rightly say, Larry wouldn't go to hell no. because he's done nothing wrong. But maybe because of the skin thing. Because yeah. there's a, she has a, like a hallucination in her room, doesn't she? Where, yeah, where he's says, skinless. I'm in hell. But it's clearly skinless, Frank. Yeah. But she's convinced her dad's there. So she's constantly searching for her dad, which, hashtag spoiler, she never finds him because he ain't in the film. Um... So, you know, that doesn't sort of really get resolved for her. But there's these weird scenes where there's, like, bodies coming out of the walls and stuff. Yeah, because we find Frank, fire. don't we? Like, Frank's, Frank's hell is these beautiful women that he could never mm, touch. Yeah. Um, and she ends up setting fire. To him and them, I think. She sets she? fire to everything. Um, which apparently, like, really happens. They set quite a bad fire. And... Um, <laughs> The actress who plays Julia apparently it burnt her back a little bit. Um, Julia kills Frank, doesn't she? Yeah. Because um, that's rips when she, his heart out of his chest. Yeah, I think. she does exactly that, and that's when she reuses the line "Nothing personal, babe." When she kills him, um, that was sort of like a nice sort of like little scene. But ultimately, we we we're seeing Doctor Channard sort of get get his way. He wants to sort of see what's in the box, basically, yeah. doesn't he? And he gets put into, like, another box within the mm. box. 
and you see him um, sort of tortured. So his face kind of gets like cheese wire. Yeah, cheese wire across the face. Um, his fingers, oh no, his fingers open, don't they? That's after he comes out. But yeah, um, he basically gets chopped up a bit. Chopped up a bit and then something's like drilled into his head as well. So when when the film starts, you basically see him cutting into a woman's head, don't yeah, you? Yeah, clearly enjoying it. Yeah, clearly enjoying it, but obviously, you know, treating her. You can't see me do air quotes there, but yeah, he's trying to uh, treat her by drilling a hole in her head. Um, and essentially what's happening here is Dr. Channard is being made into a Cenobite. Um, and this is where... Um, it's just it just all just spirals into yeah just just to because he doesn't he like floats doesn't he because the thing the thing like in his head is like is that most... meant to be Leviathan that's in his head I, I don't like, know because Julia worships Leviathan doesn't yeah. she which is this thing at the center of the labyrinth which is like the cute the box that's been like shaped into something different mm. and it's just like. Because one thing as well that I've got written down is why aren't the Cenobites chasing Julia? Because in the first film, they're almost like after Frank yeah. because he escaped, but she's escaped and no one seems to care. Mm. Um, the, so Dr. Channard's made into this Cenobite and not a very good one. Um, but what... So these Cenobites... So you've got the four main Cenobites, which we got from the first movie. So you've got lead Cenobite, who he's still known as... Um, did you've he not become got, Pinhead in this film? No, you've got lead Cenobite, you've got female Cenobite, you've got Butterball and you've got the Chatterer who have, have knocked around for quite a while and have brought about the destruction and demise of lots of people. Channard rocks up, gets a bit of cheese wire around his face and fucking offs the lot of them. Yeah, I've got that as well. He's rev- he like turns them back human, doesn't he? It's just um, like... What? Like, how has he got that power That's so why I'm quickly? thinking maybe the thing in his head is Leviathan, like the god of the maze or whatever. But yeah, I was just like, what the fuck is that? I know. I was, and it's, it's so annoying. And what... Because um, yeah, he's a shit Cenobite. And yeah, and like he, w- he wouldn't be able to do that. He just wouldn't be able to do that. But um, what I found was um, quite sad. So you see, you basically see, like Terry said, the Cenobites basically turn into their human forms again, but but they're dead. Um, but the Chatterer was a boy. You see him, like, nailed to the pillar. Yeah, like a tiny boy. Yeah, Chatterer was a boy. So whatever he's, like, fucked up shit he's got involved in, as a kid, he's, like, opened the box and done some, you know, got involved in some bad juju, and, you know, that was kind of mm. sad, I thought. Because um, you see um, Pinhead, who is not Pinhead yet, but... He's transformed back into Elliot Spencer, who was his um, his human form. Um, and this is when it's all sort of... Everyone's um, put into the pillar, aren't they? No, I don't think... That's how it ends, where they become the pillar. That's right at the end, though, yeah. isn't it? Not like Because they get changed to human, and then he basically says, like... With his eyes, says to Kirsty, run. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'll, like, distract him. So I th- I think at this in this film you kind of see that that Pinhead um, kind of maybe has like a little thing for Kirsty because he seems to be helping her out a little bit. He's helped her out in the first yeah. one. He's helping her out in this one. But yeah, I think he wants his Elliot, hands on that flesh with Elliot Spencer. He's kind of yeah. He's basically sort of saying, you know, off you pop. But yeah, I'm skipping forward to the end here because ultimately yeah. what happens is they all get put on a pillar. They're all on a pillar. Um, 
you hear um, Tiffany speak for the first time when she sees Channard as a Cenobite because she says, oh, shit, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, and he's got, like, there's patience all over the place with the lament configuration boxes. Mm. His fingers turn into, like, weird worms. Mm. So, yeah, they're back in... So, Tiffany and Kirsty, having run through the maze, end up... So, we, we haven't talked about the Julia... Yeah, the so Julia I thought we were getting... So, then you've got Julia attacks both of them and then for whatever reason someone turns a vacuum cleaner on or something and they're all being sucked down a hallway yeah and julia's holding on to them and basically she gets sucked back out of the skin somehow yeah. because her skin if she grew that skin mm. if she was wearing that as like a skin mask that would make sense yeah, yeah yeah but the fact it's actual skin that she's grown makes no sense that she would just pop out of it like that but it's obviously it's, it plays it an integral part into the film it serves a purpose yeah so julia is basically sucked down this corridor um, and her skin is split. So, so Tiffany's got hold of one hand, Kirsty's got hold of the other, and they're just holding Julia's skin. And actually, when they talk, like Tiffany looks like disgusted, doesn't she? Kind of goes yeah. Ugh, and kind of like throws it on the floor. And Julia's left laying on the floor like a used condom <laughs> with fingernails, um, fingernails and eye holes. Um, there's probably a market for that, you know. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, but you know. You have to kind of, that plays a part later on, and then that's when they they run out of the labyrinth, don't they? I don't. They go to run out, and then I think Channard turns up again, and then Tiffany falls over the edge, and she's yeah, like yeah, holding yeah. on, and Ju- Julia appears at this point. Yeah, Julia appears. <laughs> and go and holds out a hand. No, she kisses Channard. Mm. How does she? Does she pull the thing out of his head? But she basically kills Channard, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. She kisses him, and like, oh yeah, this is great. Kills him somehow. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is great. Holds her hand up, pulls up Tiffany, and then takes off her skin to reveal that it's actually Kirsty that was wearing Julia. Yeah, so right at the last minute, you kind of see... So the whole time, you've got Julia leaning over the edge of this thing to, to pull up Tiffany. and um, Because we know it's not Julia, because Julia's had her skin ripped off. Tiffany should know it's not Julia, because she was holding Julia's hand. <laughs> but... Everyone else in the, the hell labyrinth must think it's, you know, so Kirsty has done this to trick Channard. And um, right at the last minute, you see like a little, a little twitch on Julia's face where you realise that the skin is slipping. But that's still Claire Higgins yeah. playing that. And it's only um, right at the end when Tiffany's actually pulled all the way up that it's then Kirsty who takes the skin off and she's yeah. covered in all that fake blood. So she's got all that sort of like red sticky stuff on her. Um but I love those scenes where she's wearing Julia's skin. Yeah. On a side note, though, and this also goes for the first film with Frank and Larry, would you actually look like someone by wearing their skin? So Frank and Larry, possibly different because he's not got it. But Kirsty is wearing her with her own skin on. So would she actually look like Julia? Or well, would she look like her, but with Julia's skin? She'd probably look a little bit like Leatherface. Yeah, because it just wouldn't... Um, Fit, would it wouldn't it? fit right. No, yeah. of, co- of course it wouldn't. It was, it was just, it was just Sorry, at this point license. I leave the franchise. It's become too silly. <laughs> with um, with Larry and Frank, what you've got to bear in mind is they're brothers, so their, their yeah, structure might, been, might actually yeah. be similar. But I would have thought that Kirsty wearing Julia's skin would not look quite as crisp, um, crisp as, she does, um, as she does for those scenes. But it wouldn't be so appealing, would it, if it just looked like her... <laughs> An overfilled sausage. If it just looked like her wearing a Julia glove, if you like. Um, 
but no, and then and then so like, well, let's let's go to the end of the um, let's go to the end of the um, the film then, and then so what you've got then is the Cenobites that um, Chanard has managed to off miraculously on a spinning pillar on a spinning of pillar of of doom. Uh, which has got all kinds of things attached to it. Because at the beginning of the first one, it's got penises stuck to it. Um, and you see it basically disappearing back into the hell from whence it came through Julia's soiled mattress. Yeah. And it spins, and there's some very dodgy effects going on there. Um, yeah. And it spins and it disappears into there, and that's that's where we leave. Pinhead is stuck in that pillar. And then we have a beautiful shot. In the daylight of Tiffany and Kirsty holding hands, walking down a path. Um, yeah, someone did um, point out that um, I think I was I was watching um, I was watching it with uh, the commentary, and the actress who plays Kirsty was doing the commentary, and she actually said as they were watching that scene, she goes, "And here Tiffany and I go off to leave our uh, lead our lesbian um, lives now." And she's watching it. She went, "I'm wearing stockings with seams up the back." And, a, and she couldn't work out. She's like, why am I wearing those? Like, I've just got out of hospital and I'm wearing, you know, seamed stockings. And they were basically just like, oh, one of the guys on the crew just like thought you'd look really sexy in them. So she was given these like <laughs> stockings with seams up the back to wear. But she like watching it back. She's like, what the hell am I wearing? <laughs> but yeah, so those two like go off and you think, oh, happy ending. No more yeah. Cenobites. Uh, one thing before we move on, which I sent to you why didn't Channard get Tiffany to try it? Because he has other lament configurations in his house. Why didn't he just get one her to try earlier? I didn't get it. Or maybe bit. she had been trying and she hadn't been able to solve it. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe. Um, I got the impression that that's, that's the very thing he was doing. Was I thought that's why Tiffany was around. Well, yeah, he had her for that purpose, but it just seems... We- Okay, oddly convenient then that once he's got her, then it. Well, works. it wouldn't make much of a ruddy film, would it, if she'd solved it before Kirsty rocked up? They wouldn't be able to live their happy lesbian lives together afterwards, would they? Although I suspect slightly paedophilic, because Kirsty's got to be a bit older than Tiffany. Tiffany might not be of consensual age yet. I don't think she is, no. I think no. she's a small girl. Um, that's funny, because I was reading a note similar to that. Sorry, that noise you can hear is me scratching my legs. Um, you need to shave them <laughs> so that you're playing in a door frame then. I haven't shaved my legs since um, 1983 something like that yeah um, I'm basically covered in like I was going to say a fine down but it's not fine at all it's, <laughs> it's rough it's like basically like boot laces all over my body um, looks like Bigfoot yeah that's why I can't get a boyfriend um, it's the ones on my back that are the biggest problem um, <laughs> they're all matted it's just dreadful. It's dreadful. I get caught up in things all the time. Anyway, um, that's a cat bell ringing that you can hear. Right, let's move on to Hellraiser 3 then. So, Hellraiser 3. Um, I prefer it to 2. Interesting. Um, I don't. Um, <laughs> I... So Hellraiser, Hellraiser two. I very much feel you have to watch Hellraiser one to get Hellraiser oh, yeah. two. Hellraiser three is a standalone film, and this is the first film. This is Pinhead's film. He's referred to as Pinhead for the first time, but mm. he is the leading uh, star in this film. Whereas the other two, he was still. So reading about it, apparently the they planned on Julia. 
being the lead of the franchise. Yeah. But people just clinged on to Pinhead so much mm. they changed it. And she was origi- She would have been like the lead, become the lead centre yeah. by. Because they started making two before f- one had gone out. Yeah. And then one went out and obviously everyone was like, oh wow, the guy with all the nails in his head. And they sort of changed it in production to and become... That's, and that's also why the name Pinhead becomes so um, huge, like you say, because people latch, have latched on to this character which is why he's then credited for the first time as Pinhead and he's he's given that name. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, he was always just yeah. the lead Cenobite. Because um, it was, opens with his backstory, doesn't it, this one? Yeah. So this one opens with the backstory of Elliot, Elliot Spencer, um, which is who we find out he was before he was Pinhead. So he was a soldier, basically, and he found the box. And there's a really lovely shot. And I think the shot is actually in the second one. Um, where you get a flashback of Elliot Spencer um, looking at the box. So he sat cross-legged on the floor yeah. and the box is in front of him and the camera ang- the camera shot is mm. behind the box. So the box looks big. Yeah, But apparently quite... they actually made a big box. So the box is like two foot square <laughs> cause, to get the perspective. Yeah. So they had a massive box. And then when it shoots to him actually holding it, he's holding like the normal size box. Um, which I thought was kind of fun. I wouldn't mind having one. It seems like a long-winded way. She would not have finished to have got the perspective. Also, the second one. Talk about a long-winded way. With the opening credits, where you see the the title comes up, Hellraiser Two, and then the the title fades out and goes mm. really small. They actually filmed that by filming like a title card and moving the camera away. And it was one of the last times they ever did that, as opposed to using digital effects. Um, so that's in no way relevant to the film, but there you go. There's a little fact. It was also filmed back-to-back with Children of the Corn 2. We do like Children of the Corn, don't we? Um, yeah, I don't know if it's two. Isn't it three where we've got the little legs? Yeah, but even so, they, they're quite charming because I, I think uh, what happened was the studio um, the studio that made the first two went bankrupt or something. Sounds and then, about right. And then so lots of the films were floating around and nobody really owned the rights. And so the company that ended up buying them um, also had Children of the Corn. So they were being filmed um, at the same time. Um, so this film starts with, a, um, or the, the story with this, this film is you've got a guy who owns a nightclub, J.P. Monroe, um, and he likes Buying all these shit. nice things, yeah, and nice uh, things. Well, you know, like he likes to spend a lot of money on yeah. things that he considers art, and he goes to this store and he finds this weird pillar. Um, and at this point, the box is embedded in the pillar, yeah. and he um, and the guy selling it looks surprisingly like Locust Man from the yeah. first film. Um, so he's got this this pillar in his uh, room above his um, nightclub. Um, and the, the other person that we sort of focus on in this story is a, an investigative reporter called Joey. Um, and she's just trying to get a break. She's trying to get a yeah. good story. Um, and she keeps, she, you know, she's really pissed off with the, the stories that they keep sending She's in on. a hospital and no one's died. Yeah. And she's very annoyed. Yeah, so she's at this hospital to do some reports, but there's nothing to report on. But while she's there, this guy's brought in with, you know, all these hooks and chains in him. Um, and she sees some weird shit go down. Um, and the guy's brought in with a girl called Terry. Uh, Terry, Terry with an eye. Um, and so Joey then sets about. She thinks there's a story here, so she sets about trying to find Terry because she wants the story. Because Terry won't talk to her at the hospital. So she goes to this 
she goes to the boiler room, which is the club that J.P. Munro owns. Which, just as a side, so it's it's a rave. Mm. It's also a gig venue, and it's also a fine dining restaurant. Yeah, so you go basically <laughs> from um, this very sort of like loud music into like the nice classical. Um, dining area but anyway so she goes to this boiler room uh, club to try and find Terry and she's she's asking around she's going oh, I'm looking for this girl with dark hair and they're like oh you need to find JP Monroe so as an, a, li- a little aside the blonde sat next to JP Monroe at the table when Jerry first meets him was 12 mm. um, I, I gave a startled look yeah. to that fact for the radio yeah uh, she was apparently 12 years old um, did they know that yeah, I mean, she's literally just playing a girl sat at a okay. table, so nothing happens there. But um, Was that just a set-up that he is a horrible man? I don't think she's meant to be 12. It was just one of those things they said. They go, oh, by the way, that girl's 12. Um, so Joey meets J.P. Monroe for the first time. She doesn't really like him. She's just like, oh, no, he's a bit of a dick. But Terry is actually at the club, and she can see that Joey's mm. looking for her. So she decides to seek out Joey. Um, she's just like, hey, you've been looking for me. What do you want? What do you want? And uh, she basically, she's got nowhere to stay. So she's been going out with J.P. Monroe, but she's left him. And she's like, I'll tell you my story if you give me somewhere to crash. So she ends up sort of basically moving into Joey's, doesn't she? Makes a delightful breakfast. Um, Yeah, she burns everything. And she has, um, she's got, she's managed to get hold of the box out of the pillar, hasn't she? Yeah, Um, it's all like covered in crap. Yeah, Um, and she's, she basically says, oh, you know, that guy that was brought into the hospital, he was holding on to this. She gives Joey the box. Um, so that's that. So Joey's in possession with the box. She wants to find out what's going on and her and Terry start doing their little investigations. Meanwhile, at the club, you've got J.P. Monroe fucking anything that's not nailed down and he's in... Um, he, um, he notices that there's a hole in the pillar, doesn't he? And he puts his hand in to see what's going on because uh, he can hear a noise coming from the pillar yeah. and there's a rat in there. The and it rat bites him. bites him, makes his hand bleed. He gets splats of blood on the pillar and that blood is what makes Pinhead come yeah. back to life. So at the moment, we've got Pinhead's face poking yeah. through the pillar and that's all we've got of him. But the whole thing's like covered in clay or something, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like... Um, so Pinhead doesn't really look like... He's just a face poking through a pillar. Now... One of the first things, um, so you prefer number three to number two. I think <laughs> number three for me is a turd of a film, but one of um, one of the things I really don't enjoy about the third one is Pinhead's makeup. It's a lot more, um, it's almost too perfect. Yeah. It's like they, they basically did it to make it easier to apply. Yeah, I saw that, but he said he didn't like it as much. He didn't, either, he did. didn't like it. It wasn't as comfortable for him to wear. He wasn't comfortable in the pillar anyway, but even outside of the pillar, the makeup looks too perfect. I just don't like it. But anyway, so you've got Pinhead's face poking out of the pillar. Um, and when he appears for the first time, so one of the best lines ever is when, so he comes to life and he kind of like, you know, he opens his mouth. And he's there. J.P. Monroe goes, Jesus Christ. And he goes, not quite. Yeah. Um, and it's such a That's brilliant line. That's not from the flick of the blood from the bite, though, is it? That's after the girl. Yeah. I thought the yeah, blood, yeah, yeah. we see something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's just it's just such a, such a brilliant line. So essentially what he's basically um, getting J.P. to do. So essentially J.P. becomes Pinhead's Julia, doesn't he? Yeah, essentially. Um because JP's got this girl up in his room that he's 
uh, sleeping with, which is, I think, the scene that you were watching on the bus. Yes. So he's they're having lovely, quite. He's he's having a lovely time. He's going for it. He's playing with her boobs, which. Do you know why he's playing with her? Because boobs? she didn't want her boobs out on yeah. screen. She didn't want her boobs to be shown, so his hands are on them, which in a way just makes it seem even more, I don't know, just dirty. But anyway. Yeah. And um, then she just sort of goes and stands and looks at it, doesn't she's she? Just, she's just looking at all of his shit, isn't she? Kind of going, oh yeah. my God, your stuff's so cool. And Pinhead basically just sucks gobbles her, her up. Yeah, sucks <laughs> her through the hole. Yeah. And that's sucks when, her skin off first. Yeah. And then she stood there like skinless Frank and Julia. And then she just really shit effects, just mm. gets sucked into the pillar. And that's when Pinhead then sort of comes to life and starts talking, but yeah. still attached to the pillar. And that's when JP says Jesus Christ and he yeah. says not quite. And that's when he's basically... Um, that's when he's he's basically saying, like, you know, I can give you all this yeah. power, blah, blah, blah. Because at first he's very reticent, isn't he, JP? He's like, mm. I'm not sure. And then, like, because Pinhead then starts telling, it's like, oh, like, because he pulls a gun on him, he's like, oh, you're going to kill me like you killed your parents because you wanted their money. Yeah. So we find out that JP really is a very horrible guy. Oh, JP's just the worst. Um, so, yeah, so that, then you've got um, Joey and Terry doing their investigations. Um and they sort of discover what what the box is and what it can do. Uh, they find Dr. Chenard's files yeah. or something, don't they? Because they, they end up watching videos of Kirsty being yeah. interviewed. Um, so, yeah, they, they f- luckily find all this stuff um, and basically work out what's going on. Um, and Joey cleans the box up all nice, doesn't she? Um, no, she's... I don't know if she cleans it up or whether it's where Pinhead's come into life. Oh, the, okay. The box is coming to life, was what I thought. I I wasn't watching it fully, so she may have actually cleaned it. But my, because Terry picks up the box, and says, "Oh, you've polished it." And for me, I thought it was just that the box was coming back to life. Oh, okay. So I always got it because she actually says, "Oh, she's cleaned you up nice." I yeah. always assumed that Joey had actually just cleaned it. Um, but I did wonder if in if she did actually clean it, how she didn't accidentally open it. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so Terry ends up going back to JP, doesn't she? Yeah, he calls her up and he's like, oh, I made a mistake, come back. All that kind of bollocks. Because Pinhead's trying to eat Terry, or JP's trying to get Pinhead to eat Terry. Um, But even though there's plenty of other girls that he can... Because he desperately wants her for some reason, but Mm. he's... Obviously, we see JP Moreau as an absolute cock, Mm. but all the girls in that club would clamour at the opportunity to go up to his bedroom with him and he mm. could just off them. And I also found it weird that he had to like get them right by the pillar as well. Yeah. Because like, he's like trying to get her to hug him right next to it. Because you'd have thought Pinhead would have been able to just get her once she was in the room, but apparently they had know, to be within he's touching. Still, he's still stuck in the pillar. Yeah, he could whack a chain out of that hole. He's still stuck in the pillar. Um, but essentially, we get... So it's um, similar to the first one where Kirsty kind of saves herself by sacrificing Frank. And we get a similar situation where Pinhead is kind of like, yeah, JP's she, knocked out, isn't it? Pinhead's yeah, kind she, of goes basically She whips going, out a knuckle duster and knocks him out. But he's like, pass me JP and I'll suck his skin off and eat yeah. him up and you'll be saved kind of thing. And that's essentially, yeah. that's essentially what happens. And then Pinhead's out of the pillar, isn't he? Yeah. And he's free to roam yeah, around and we find and out that when shit. he was uncenobited, he was basically removed from the rules of hell because even hell has rules, but now he doesn't. And he goes on a bloody rampage. He, literally a yeah. bloody rampage. So, um, 
And then what you've got... Um, <laughs> well, you've got these new Cenobites. Well, right. Before we get to that, so yeah. it goes into the club and all of the yeah, yeah, horrible yeah. statues come to life, which I thought was pretty cool, pretty okay, creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the cl- I'm skipping over these <laughs> massive bits because I've just, just... This film, fucking hell. Um, so, yeah, he goes and wreaks havoc, doesn't he, yeah. in the club. And Kills you see, hundreds of people in a club in one And you see go. certain people killed in certain ways. So the DJ is killed with... CDs being thrown at yeah. him. The cameraman that has been helping Joey. I don't is, think we see him get no, killed. You don't see him get killed, but you see his. When Joey goes to the club, you see him. He's got a camera headless. for a head. Yeah, his head is in his lap, and his and a camera has been put where his head should be. Um, and there's like chains going through people into yeah. other people. They're getting pulled up to the ceiling. They're getting ripped to pieces. It's just like a proper OTT '80s gore fest at this mm. point. But then you've basically got like a, a game of cat and mouse, haven't you, between Joey and... Where the shit running begins. With Joey and Pinhead, where Pinhead's outside. It's almost like he's commanding these other Cenobites. And the, like water do, and electricity. To do his bidding. But you, you see these other Cenobites from the, who've been made from the club. Um, and you've got the cameraman, the camera head, who's her old cameraman. So he's just like shit. His left CD eye is head. now a camera. CD head, who f- fires CDs out and out. stomach out of his face. And then they call him Barbie, the barbed wire guy who shoots fire out of his mouth as well. He was the barman, wasn't he? Yeah, but they just all look so shit. To be fair, Pinhead does say, "Not my best work." Mm. They all look so shit, and it's just the way that I don't know. It's just the way he's like commanding them and stuff. It just doesn't sort of. Pinhead's become a bit cocky, and I yeah. don't like he's it. He's becoming a bit Freddy Kruegery. He's with becoming the sort of wise cracks and stuff. Yeah, he's becoming a bit cocky, and he's not as like like in the first two. He was sort of he didn't say much, but when he mm. said it, it, it carried a lot of weight. But now he's just fucking. It's the same with anything when like the main sort of plus of a character is that you don't see them that much, and they're an enigma. Yeah. Once you start explaining them and showing them, but they lose the, that. It's basically what the fans of the film wanted. Yeah. They wanted a Pinhead film, and they. And they got it. And like you said, he starts to use electricity and water. And there's one scene where she's running away very slowly from him. <laughs> and water's running down the street yeah, after her. following her. Apparently that street was called Elm Street. Oh, is it now? Oh, that's a nice little fact, isn't Lovely it? Lovely touch. Um, and they end up in a church. Yeah, and that's where it gets weird. So That's th- where it gets weird. <laughs> she gets into a church, I think, thinking that they're safe because he's from hell. But he bursts in, the glass bursts everywhere. All the windows blowing. He steps up to the altar, pulls a pin out of his head, which at the beginning of the film we see the pins go in. He pulls about an 18-inch pin Mm. out of his head. That has a worm wrapped around the end of it. Yeah, I don't understand the worm. I didn't understand I think the reason the worm is around the end is because it makes it like a corkscrew because then we see what he does. He basically then puts him through his hands to be the, the stigmata. And he goes into a Jesus Christ pose and says, I am the way. Yeah. Um... I mean, it's a, I, I think it's a good-looking scene with the like the uh, the stained glass behind him, but it's the the tilt of the head and the cocky yeah. smile, and it's just like oh, I don't know. Yeah, he has become like a cackling villain at this yeah. point. Yeah, and then he gets then he gets hold of the priest, and he's basically so Pinhead is pulling off his own flesh and trying to feed oh, it yeah. to the priest. This is my flesh. Yeah, I am the flesh, and it's just like oh god. Oh, because the just... bit we've missed, Joey has the box. Yeah. 
and Pinhead needs the box so he can't be sent to hell, but he can't take it. He has to be offered it. So Joey could just sort of stand there and hold it without sort of him being able to rip it out of her hands. Yeah, so she's um, she's basically running this way and that very slowly yeah. away whilst being chased by all these terrible, terrible Cenobites. And she's running down, she runs out of the church and then we bump into the J.P. Monroe and Terry Cenobites. <laughs> Which are the worst. Um Although when I was younger, I always kind of had a little bit of a crush on the uh, Terry Cenobite. I mean, she's not too bad. She's like now bald and she's got her throat's open. She's got a cigarette in the hole. Yeah. And then JP... Because what we haven't explained is there is no scene with Terry where she's not smoking. Oh, there's a lovely bit I've made a note of. When she first goes to Joey's house, Joey's like, would you like a cigarette? And she picks up like a plate that has the cigarettes on it. And I just like the fact that she just kept the cigarettes on a plate in her house. (laughs) And JP was killed... By like having something rammed through his head, and he has like like a pneumatic it's, drill um, through his head. It's motorbike pistons. Yeah, and they're just like constantly. Because I think he had uh, probably had a motorbike up in his yeah. flat. Because he's almost looking like the hunchback of Notre Dame at this point. Isn't yeah, he? it's like his face is so disfigured by the amount of shit that they've pushed into it. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just ridiculous. And because they're yeah. just like taunting her, trying to get her to drop the box because they yeah. can't like take it off of her. And they're all just like crowded round her. Because Terry's up like giving high. him giving her fag burns. Yeah, Pinhead's up high, isn't he? Kind of like lording over it. But essentially, with her slippery, bloody hands, she manages to get the box in the right configuration. Yeah, and send them to hell. And send them all um, back in. But she has, before this happens, she has some nice hallucinations, doesn't she, about her father. Yeah, so she constantly has like nightmares of her dad being left behind, I'm assuming in Vietnam. In the war, yeah. But but that, the, the come to daddy, um, I don't know if it plays or if I've just made a note that um, because she's hallucinating about her father, if it's almost like a, in the second film, Kirsty was trying to save her dad, but she yeah. couldn't. And I just wonder if they were trying to maybe just play that storyline out yeah, in I've, the third one. I feel like that was like the tie they put to it, but it wasn't... I never thought like she was going to somehow be able to save her dad. No, but I just thought the whole connection with her dad being in yeah. it. Do you know what I mean? It's just It was almost it, like another come to daddy in the third yeah. one. Yeah, because um, she keeps doing And then she has a dream where... I forget his name. What's human? Elliot. Where Elliot human, Spencer, yeah. human Pinhead like enters her dream mm. and like tells her that he can defeat Pinhead if she can just bring him through the window to him and he'll be able to defeat him. Because they end up sort of doing a weird merging, don't they? Yeah, so she is then sat in like a quarry, essentially, with the box and he's like, but I haven't destroyed him, I didn't take him to Elliot. And then she just wakes up in a field, it like cuts to a field and her dad is coming across the field and it's like, oh, like someone came and saw me and like describes Elliot, told me to come this way because my daughter's looking for me and they have this wonderful tender moment oh and he said that you'd have something for me so she hands him the box and then it becomes immediately apparent that this is pinhead that she's just handed the box to willingly um because he said her name and he'd never know that because she died before he was born yeah and it was just yeah that that was some pretty bad effects there as well but um yeah and essentially what happens is you see elliot spencer and pinhead basically almost having like a bit of a face off aren't they because like there's a bit where it's half pinhead, half human, then it's all pinhead but no nails. And and it, basically they kind of like merge and become one. So Elliot Spencer kind of goes within yeah. pinhead, doesn't he? Because um, pinhead tries to tempt him, doesn't he? Because it's just like, you enjoy the shit as mm. well. Like, 
you made me, I'm not something else. Like, you want to do this to her as much as I want to do it. And you can see that Elliot's torn with whether he should just join in again or not. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously some good still within him because he's helped Kirsty in the past and he's helping Joey now. But yeah, essentially, Joey gets the box into the right configuration. <coughs> All the Cenobites are sucked back into the box and there's some construction work going on and there's some handy wet cement. Yeah, considering it's the middle of the night yeah. as well, very handy. It, it almost seems like dawn is breaking at this point, so the cement is still wet. So those workers are not going to be happy when they get back to work because their cement is not set. But it does mean that she's able to place the box into the wet cement and sink it down. And then walk off happily ever after. And then walk off and we think it's all over. But then what you actually see is then it flashes forward to when all the construction work is finished and you see a massive sculpture outside this building, which is obviously part of the box. And then inside the building, it's all just decorated. All the decoration is just the lament configuration. It's basically just, yeah. So it's almost like the build... I'm assuming potentially they were looking at the building has become the box that anyone in the building Mm. could be pulled into it, but... I mean, I can't remember what Hellraiser 4 is, but they went in a different direction. It's Pinhead in space. Is it? Mm. Um, but don't worry, we're not covering that one. So I've seen most of them, but I can't remember anything about any of them. Um, and that's where it ends. And that's where we decided to finish yep. with our... Um, because there are a lot of Hellraisers, and they do descend into absolute dog shit. I mean, I'm, I, don't, I don't hate the third one. Um... I tell you what I prefer it infinitely to is the third Halloween movie, but we'll get on to that Let's not talk about Halloween episode. on this pod. But just as I don't rate Hellraiser 3, um, you know, compared to the first two, but as we're going to go on and talk about another trilogy, um, I prefer it to that, probably prefer it to Friday the 13th Part 3 as well. Yeah, I could go along with that. But the child, we as we discussed, the child's play first three just all brilliant yeah um so yeah but hellraiser that... one is just phenomenal what hellraiser, oh, one. hellraiser one yeah 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 um yeah it's brilliant i mean and what a what a horror icon another one that's being rebooted so imagined with hellraiser slash pinhead because i feel like it it's not really the hellraiser films it's the pinhead films because the mm. later ones don't have all the cenobites they just, basically mm. they started going through a phase of they would find a script where they could fit Pinhead in yeah. because I don't know the studio that it is, but the studio that hold the rights, they have to make a film every X amount of time or they lose the rights. Mm. So that's why there's so mm. many shit films because they just keep churning them out to keep hold of the rights rather than thinking, you know what, let's make a good one. Yeah. But there is talk of a Clive Barker involved reboot slash sequel. From what I've read of it, it, if it is a reboot, it's not like a remake, It's but it seems like it involved one storyline I read of it is Kirsty going back to the house with her daughter and it's like it all happens to her daughter mm. um, but yeah there is talk of another proper go at it rather than the shit they've been because in more recent ones Doug Bradley stopped playing Pinhead as well so he played him for the first I think eight films mm. but then they became so shit like one of them had like a $500,000 budget but in like the year two th- in like the noughties mm. which that's no money Obviously, we talked about Jason being made for 300 grand, but that was in the 80s, so that's a lot more money. But yeah, that's why there's so much shit, because they just need... They don't want to let go of the rights. Yeah. But don't want to put the money into making an actual good film. Um, I mean, I do have have all the later ones, and I've watched them all once, but 
if if I'd have had time, I would have watched some of them for like comedy value. Yeah. Um, just to sort of like revisit them or just watch them for a bit of fun. But nah, I didn't have time. I didn't want to do that. No, a lot of them. So most of them is literally it's a film, and then they've just shoehorned Pinhead into it because one of them's got Henry Cavill in it. Perfect. Superman, yeah. Cyber World or something like that. From what I remember, it's one of the better ones. But Superman World. Yeah. Um, right, I'm all done. You haven't got any anything there that you need to talk about? No, I've mentioned everything I wanted to mention. Cool. Okay, then. So that's that wraps us up for um, Hellraiser and the prickly-faced bastard that is Pinhead. I wouldn't call him a bastard. At least... Oh, I think he's charming, at least in the first two. Um, we won't be talking about him, I'd say, for at least another year, unless... Unless they knock another one out Unless soon. you hang out with me personally, in which case I'll probably talk about him every 35 minutes or so. Um, but I'd rather you didn't, because I don't really like people. So... What do we need to do? Social media? Social media. So we are Theatrical Cut Pod on Instagram. Uh, I'm sure we'll be putting up a lot of stuff as we go over the Hellraisers. Not, Sonia said she's taken a lot of pictures. I've found some cool behind-the-scenes pictures. I haven't taken a lot. I've taken two. Okay, Sonia's taken two pictures. In my life. <laughs> um, so yeah, there'll be lots of stuff on there. And then I am Prefax on Twitter and on Instagram. Sonia is Mallory underscore watches on Instagram. I'm not going to attempt the mother pod because I always get it wrong. Sonia? Um, the mother pod is T-M-T-O-O-H on Instagram and 2-M-T-O-O-H on the Twitter. And I believe they will have a Halloween special coming out in the coming days, possibly before that you listen to this one. They um, are going to be talking about scary games, yes. horror games. Wait, did you ever play games? No. I've not. No? PS1, I was a big gamer and I had a PS2, but... Like the, for me, the, probably the scariest game I ever played was Alien Trilogy or Quadrilogy okay. that was on PlayStation. That was pretty creepy. Okay. But I've never played like Resident Evil, anything like that. Uh, Just never been a gamer. No. Very odd for a boy, I know. A bit general. Um, okay, cool. Uh, are we done? All done. Mike, drop. <laughs>